So, Rebecca, I, for some reason, have schadenfreude. Whenever I pick up my newsletter from my malpractice insurance, they send me a newsletter that will often describe a case in which a therapist was sued successfully. I think they, oh. I think they send out these newsletters as a way of scaring all of us to reduce our risky behaviors so that they can reduce their costs so that they can not raise our rates, which is great. But whenever I read these things, I, I, I've been, I always say, oh, man, I want to talk about this on the podcast. And, and a part of me wonders why I'm so excited about talking about these things in the podcast. And I, I think part of it is that it, I get schadenfreude or a, a sense of um, – a pleasure from seeing these counselors uh, and their foibles. It's it's like America's funniest home videos for therapists. Just watching these therapists crash into the side of a house on their bicycle. Do you know what I mean? It's always fascinating to watch other people fail. I totally hear you on that one. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to talk about a case in which a therapist got sued successfully. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. Who are you, Rebecca? Uh, my name is Rebecca Bloom, and I'm a licensed mental health counselor in practice in South Seattle. So there are three main people here. There's the defendant, who is a supervisor. There's the supervisee, who's the treating counselor. And then there's the plaintiff, who is the client. So let me just describe this a little bit. We have the defendant, who's the person who was sued, a female supervisor. Mm -hmm. She is a clinical mental health counselor, like yourself, and she is in a different state other than Washington because she is her license is a licensed professional clinical counselor, or LPCC, and she's also an art therapist, like you. Oh, is this you? Did you get sued? No. Okay. Um, she's employed at a university clinic as a counselor and supervisor, and she's also in private practice, but that is incidental to the story. Uh, the supervisee is a female counselor and worked under the supervisor at the university clinic. And this is interesting little detail. For 15 years, she's been supervised by the defendant, Whoa. Uh, by the supervisor. So 15 years being supervised at the at the clinic. So this is no, you know recent grad. This is an experienced clinician. During the first 10 years, the supervisor reviewed all written treatment notes by the supervisee. So the supervisor during the first two, 10 years of supervision was pretty vigilant. But over the last five years, the supervisor was not as, as vigilant, met less often, and didn't read her notes as often, if ever, which I I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty normal. It, it, yeah. if, if you were at a university clinic or a clinic and you had a supervisee who had 15 years experience, would you need to meet with them every week and review every single progress note, Rebecca? I mean, I would assume at that point they would be themselves licensed. Right. And our work would be more consulting than in a supervisor role. Does that make sense? Right. Like, I'm wondering why this person is still being supervised because it they don't probably need supervision. Uh, usually you only need supervision for about two or three years after graduation. So uh, I'm guessing that you're right, that the person's fully licensed and doesn't need supervision. But I think some agencies will do this. They will always have a hierarchy where someone's always 
that they always have a supervisor or you know that signs off on their notes just as a formal consultant or something i don't know sure but if i was this supervisor at this clinic i i i might push for the label to not be supervisor and to be more of consultant um because you can have that too you know because and it's less it's there's less expectations if you're a consultant than if you're a supervisor anyway so there's so we have the the defendant supervisor with a supervisee and we have the plaintiff who is a female client of the supervisee a writer and a lawyer which is incidental but maybe not since a lawyer. Um, three years of counseling with uh, with the supervisee to work on a breakup of her marriage and past childhood traumas. Okay, the supervisee engaged in a number of unethical and unprofessional behaviors. This is how it's written uh, written up in the brief. For example, overnight counseling sessions where they would sleep in the same bed. Whoa, what? Who comes up with this stuff? So, okay. what do you think? Have you ever done that before? Have you ever had it? You know, that's not in my repertoire. I have had clients say they'd like to stay in my office, and my joke is that it's very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I've gotten out of that one. Okay. What if What if your client said, hey, how about we have an overnight session and sleep in the same bed? Yeah, I would say no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a lack of uh, personal and professional boundaries. I don't know who would, I've never met anybody who's gotten in trouble for doing that. So that's pretty unique. Yeah. So the supervisor became aware of the inappropriate relationship between the supervisee and the client during one of the infrequent supervision meetings. What do you think the supervisor did in response to learning this? Uh, I would hope that she asked that that behavior was immediately, is the word desisted, cease and desist, <laughs> um, and that she suggested that it wasn't, there was not a therapeutic relationship anymore and that that person shouldn't be seeing that client anymore. Yeah, the supervisor voiced her concern to uh, about this behavior with the supervisee. Uh, incidentally, it, I think... There is more to the story because they just, in the brief, it just said, quote unquote, overnight counseling sessions where they would sleep in the same bed. That's so insane. Right. And so I, I just assume there's more to that story and more data than that or more details like they were having a romantic interest in each other or had had sex. Uh, I don't know, but um, uh, but they didn't give details on that. So. Because I have a hard time believing that everything was fine, and then one night, for some totally unromantic, unrelated to sex reason, they decided to have an overnight session where they would sleep in the same bed. Do you know what I mean? It seems like there's, right. a, there's a larger context there that we're just not privy to. But anyway, so yeah, the supervisor told her supervisee, uh, I, don't, I, I don't feel very comfortable with that. The supervisor encouraged her to make a contract with the client. Uh, that they would uh, sign and confirm the normal boundaries of their relationship. So the supervisor basically says, "Hey, supervisee, you're gonna you're gonna write up a contract and an agreement that you're no longer gonna have these overnight sessions. That you're, this is a therapist client relationship, and you're da 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 da, and you're gonna you're gonna both sign that." So the supervisor is basically telling both of them to knock it off and. You know, there's a and because there's a contract agreement 
So if they break that agreement, the supervisor can say, well, I made them sign this agreement. What do you think about that intervention as a supervisor? Uh, you know, I guess it's okay. I mean, I'm surprised that she let the relationship continue as a supervisor because at that point it's pretty much toast. You know, there's not a lot of therapy going on. Right. Um, but I imagine if she had a long-term relationship with this therapist, you know, it was probably really shocking. I mean, I've had that happen with ethical violations where it takes the people around that person a long time for it to soak in that someone that they cared about as a and they were helping train or there was their peer did something really stupid yeah um so sometimes it can you know these things can move a little slower because everybody's kind of in shock right yeah the supervisor uh according to the brief also recommended what you're saying which is that the supervisee terminate the relationship and refer the client to another counselor so it seems as though there were conflicting advice to the supervisee. So one piece of directive was this contract, and the other one was terminate. Uh, so um, given that whole thing, what do you think? Do you think the supervisor did the right thing? Um, I mean, you know, was another step would have been to report that person to the ethics board. Um, you know, I'm curious what's missing, because it's like if, this, if someone got sued, you know, somebody missed a step somewhere. So I'm kind of like, where, you know, where's that step? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what I would have done in that situation, honestly, because I tend to have a pretty, um, I don't know, I, I, my supervisees I tend to really like and I try to protect them and I tend not to react super uh, authoritarian with them. And so I, I, I tend to... Uh, be pretty soft on supervisees, honestly, because I everyone makes mistakes. I've never had this before, so I really don't know what I would have done with this because this is so beyond the pale. But I, I would like to think that I would do the following things: that at least to cover my ass, I would have consulted with another supervisor, oh. you know, no, well, or a lawyer, but really another supervisor, and documented that conversation. Mm-hmm. I would have also talked with the client, maybe. Uh, personally to see what happened and and what they wanted to do because as a supervisor I'm responsible for the for my supervisee's clients welfare and so I you know I'm getting this story from the supervisee but I don't know what the client you know what their side of the story is and so I'd I'd probably want to reach out to them and say so this is what your therapist is telling me you know do you want to say anything you don't have to what do you want me to do as a supervisor i think i might have done that because that would have probably got to the heart of the issue right away um and uh instead of instead of just relying on the supervisee's account i might have required the supervisee to take some courses or maybe write a paper I've done that before. But again, it's sort of weird when you have a clinician who has 15 years experience or at least least 15 years experience because it's been 15 years underneath the supervisor's supervision. Uh, It'd be a little weird to, you know, come down on someone at that stage. But anyway. And I have to say in my experience, because I'm sure we both have. Well, I've been in a situation where a student made a really bad choice and having them write a paper like... It didn't really do what I hoped. Right. I think the best thing was for that person to take some serious time off 
and decide if this is the field that they want to work in with the rules that exist in this field. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That could have been something to do, but you know, highly disruptive. This sure. therapist has a full client load, presumably. Uh, the therapist needs to work for a living, um, you know, so it's pretty, but you know, that would be something that you could do. Yeah. Did she get paid for the sleeping time? Like, is that, <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, that's what I want to know. Like, yeah. I mean, it's all billable hours. That's her hourly rate. You I know? wonder what the code is for the CBT right. code is for that. For yeah. a sleepover session. Yeah. That's, I haven't seen that code or used that code. Yeah. Oh, it's deep. It's in there. It's in there. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to get a 90-minute session. I'm trying to imagine a 24-hour session, how you would bill for that. Yeah. Um, uh, I also probably would have fired the supervisee. Uh, again, I'm working for a university clinic in this scenario, in this hypothetical scenario. And so, you know, with my private supervisee, if a private supervisee did this to me, I would fire them immediately. Because, and I've done that before, I've fired supervisees before, because I, I can't deal with supervisees who do this sort of thing without asking me. I mean, the lack of judgment that would have to be present for a supervisee to go f so far down this road without ever telling me about it, uh, you know, it just indicates someone that I don't want to have to worry about in my professional life. They're a liability to my license, to my career, to my, to my checkbook. <laughs> they're, uh, you know, there's just something, there's something wrong there. And I have fired supervisees for far less than that. And um, now I don't fire people on the first, you know, problem. I will usually give people several second chances if they're you know, on the mild side. But if someone did this to me, I would be like, you're done. But if I'm at a clinic and I'm forced to supervise these people because it's my role, right? you know, I don't know. I don't know what the flexibility would be there. But if I had a way out, I would get, I would get out uh, from from having to supervise this person because they're going to drag me down with them, which is exactly what happened. Um you know, it clearly states in my contract, and we often talk about it verbally, that they have to tell me about things right away. And I'll tell, I'll tell them, look, text me, call me in the middle of the week. I don't care. You know, if you run into a situation where you're not sure and it's, and it's a risky situation, then then you have to call me. I'm not, I'm not saying you can. I'm saying it's required that you call me. And, you know, we'll problem solve it and, and work our way through it. So um, now most of my supervisees are really good about that. But occasionally I get one that isn't and I have no problem firing them. Um, so what happened was, so again, the supervisor was like, make this contract with you and your client. And also you might want to terminate the supervisor uh, moving forward, never followed up on the contract. What? Yeah, just just sort of, I, you know, if this again, if this happened to me, I'd be like, we're talking every day. Right. I want daily, hourly updates on what the hell you're doing and what is going on. You know, I would, you know, I would really pounce on this. But the supervisor apparently never followed up on the situation. Also, the supervisee never provided the supervisor with a signed contract. Um you know, I, if this happened to one of my supervisees, I would be freaking out. Mm -hmm. I would be lying awake at night going, 
when are the ethical police going to start knocking on my door? You know, when are, when are the ethical SWAT team going to bust into my bedroom and haul me to jail? Of course that doesn't happen, but, but I would have that fear in me of, Oh my God, if this comes to light before I can fix it, all our careers are over, you know? And yet this supervisor was just like, eh, you know, yeah, just do this, and then failed to follow up. Like, what? So the client eventually terminated counseling, and the supervisee, uh, beyond the termination, engaged in a quote-unquote personal and exploitative relationship with the Mm -hmm. client. So we don't even know what that means, but Mm -hmm. uh, I assume, again, that these two women were having sex, and the therapist had fallen in love with the client and then the client was uncomfortable and then terminated and then the therapist kind of pursued the client and um, and then the client ended up uh, drawing a boundary with the therapist and saying, look, stop, you can't contact me anymore. And I just have to say, who are these people? You know, I mean... Yeah, have you heard of Tinder? There, there's, there's other places. So anyway, there, there's, there's a lot of different products out there that make it extremely easy to meet people who are legitimate targets of your romantic and sexual energy, other than your clients. What's wrong with you? Okay, so. The client uh, then says, well, I, I still need therapy, and now I need more of it because my therapist just screwed me up, so I'm going to a new counselor. The client uh, then sits down with this new counselor and proceeds to tell this new counselor about what happened with her previous therapist. Uh, what would you do if uh, you had this new client, and she comes in, and she's like, yeah, so... Uh, you know, one thing led to another and we were having overnight sessions and we would sleep in the same bed and then, you know, terminated and we had this, you know, ongoing romantic relationship after we terminated and then I just drew a boundary and said no more. And so now I'm here with you. What would you do, Rebecca? Well, I would encourage the client to report that to the ethics board um, because that client is, I mean, that therapist is going to hopefully lose their license over this. So starting to put things in play to protect the client and the community. I mean, chances are if this therapist has done it once, they're going to do it again. Right. Or have, Um, or has done it several times up until. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Would you do anything else? Uh, I would cyber stalk the therapist. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I have, I actually, I have, I mean, I do that from time to time when people tell me crazy stories. About their former about their former therapist. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, what is going on here? Yeah, and then you see their picture, and you're like, oh, goes figures. They look like a creep. Um, yeah. So the new counselor uh, did not encourage a uh, a report yet. The new counselor requested records for their previous counselor, which I find to be sort of an interesting move by the new therapist because it, you know, it's like. Where it was the new therapist like I'm gonna I want to find out for myself what happened? Right. I mean, does the client present in such a way where you would think maybe the client is falsifying right information? Right. Or the new therapist is like, I bet you anything, if I ask for records, <laughs> that this therapist is going to start to squirm a little bit. You know, um, 
So I don't know. I think that's an interesting move. And But it's also really customary for a therapist to be like, can I have the previous record so I can continue treatment, you know, uh, with the knowledge of what you learned. And so it's both a professional normal thing and also, you know, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. All right. So the the old counselor, the supervisee, gets this request. What do you think the counselor did in response to this request for the client's file? She doesn't send it. Yeah. You've, uh, you know, you've picked up on the pattern of idiocy in this counselor and predicted correctly more idiotic behavior. The counselor only provided a summary, which I'm guessing is like a a new discharge summary that she probably wrote. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, because she doesn't want anyone to see what's what's happened here. But I just always, you know, every time I read these malpractice claims from my malpractice insurance, these briefs, this is almost always, if not always, the case. There's there's some kind of red flag. Someone asks for the client's file, and the therapist doesn't doesn't give it out. And I'm always just wondering, like, what are you thinking, as the counselor? What what is it's you can't you're not going to get away with it. Mm-hmm. It you know people don't typically just go away. And if you you don't have any other recourse but then but to give it. Plus, if you don't give it, you're basically admitting you're guilty. <laughs> And two, you're, it's another huge red flag and another violation that you can get in trouble for. So I, I'm, it's always just like, you know, if you're stupid, then you're, you're stupid consistently is the thing. And, <laughs> and so, maybe that's helpful for people. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, uh, so do you think the counselor's file was without flaws, Rebecca? Oh, I'm sure it was severely flawed. In what way? I can't imagine. Maybe so it was probably there wasn't adequate documentation. Yeah. Uh, Maybe there was no documentation at all. I mean, that's another thing that therapists get in trouble for. Yeah. Well, uh, you picked the wrong idiot thing. Oh, darn it. It contained a lot of information, but it was... But it was well. It was misrepresentation. It was lies, essentially, and defamatory statements about the client. That's all that was said in the brief. Again, no details. But I'm guessing what, that the, give me an example. What is a defamatory statement? Well, you know, they didn't say it in the brief, but I'm guessing it had an account that did not reveal the various unethical oh. behaviors that the counselor engaged in. Okay, and it probably also had notes that made it seem as though the the client was to blame. You know, mm-hmm. you know, like the client uh, is calling me all the time, or I don't know, just some kind of self-protective statement in there. And so uh, there's that. All right. So the so the new counselor gets this that gets this summary, and it's you know, and it has misrepresentations and defamatory statements. What do you think the new counselor did? Finally reports it. So, yeah, well, encourages the client to report the unethical oh, and unprofessional. God. And the client did so. And she also filed a lawsuit, which is different. Oh, you know, yes. it's the thing for therapists to understand is the the state uh, has gives you your license and is authorized to take away that license or to impose sanctions on you to keep your license. Civil court, you you have to pay money, and that's where your malpractice insurance 
uh, really comes into play. But it can also come into play in your in an in a board by paying for a board lawyer. But anyway, when the supervisor, so remember the supervisor is the is the poor supervisor. Yeah. So when the supervisor was notified about the lawsuit, what did she do? Do you think she needs to get her own lawyer at that point? Yeah, but what she's trying. How do you think she responded? She said it wasn't my fault. She said, she... <laughs> "Yeah, right." Again, idiot, idiot idiocy is um, consistent. She tried to claim that she didn't know anything about the case. Oh no! This is a very common tactic that I've seen in these cases, and it could have worked, but the supervisor, uh, you know, because it could have worked if the supervisor could have proven that the supervisee never told her, you know, because if the supervisee the therapist never told the supervisor about this situation. Then the supervisor said, look, it's not my fault. She never told me. But later they found lengthy emails from the supervisee to the supervisor about this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, no details, but I'm guessing that the supervisee to uh, cover her ass a little bit said, look, my supervisor knew all about this and here are my emails to prove it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm because in a case like this, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go into your email account necessarily. So, um, so yeah, that's what the supervisor did. Okay, so how much did the supervisor oh, – what? I, we're now we're to the money part. That's yeah, so, the, so she lost the case. Um, how much did the supervisor have to pay, do you think? Oh, boy. Um, which is which comes out of malpractice insurance. Right. I don't know. I know it's $3 million aggregate, but I never know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This is like big money, big money, but I don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, what's your guess? A million dollars. Yeah. That's always, whenever I ask people to guess these, they always guess way too high because I think it's, so it's actually around 20,000. Okay. And then legal. This is damages. Yeah. This is, this is money to the client and then legal expense is about 15,000. And that's only the supervisor, by the way, the, the brief didn't talk about the supervisee's uh, civil suit because I think that the supervisor had my insurance as their insurance and the supervisee had a different malpractice insurance. Hmm. And so anyway, so the supervisor, about 15000 in in legal expenses, about 20000 in indemnity. And the, uh, the thing is, is that when it comes to malpractice in psychotherapy, the customary payouts is not, it's just not that high uh, for whatever reason. Because it's not seen as damages, like that would impact your ability to make a living or future wages or any of those things. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's, it's just not, you know, it's, and that's just something to keep in mind that, at, you know, even these idiots, when they get caught with both hands in the cookie jar and then claim that their hands aren't in the cookie jar they get slammed by the full extent of the court and it's not even that bad, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's just an interesting kind of lesson to learn. Okay. What's the moral of the story here, Rebecca? Uh, don't have overnights with your client. <laughs> you know, if you have a kooky idea, really check in with someone before you act on it. Like those kind of overnight sessions i don't know where she got that idea that that would be helpful right exactly consult before acting i mean there should be two things that should always be going through your mind one is 
am I acting typical of a therapist right now? Mm-hmm. And if not, I should be consulting with someone. Just I'll just run this by someone, you know, just see what they say. Because if she ran this by, like, I'm thinking about having an overnight session with a client. I can't imagine any other therapist being like, oh, yeah, sounds like a great idea. Mm-hmm. I, I just I can't imagine that. So, yeah, you're right. Consult before taking these actions. What other morals of the story are there? Uh, if you don't trust what your supervisee is up to, bring in as many people as you possibly can. Consult as much as you possibly can uh, to cover, what do they call it? COA, cover your ass? Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't want to get saddled with this. Right. Yeah. Uh, any other morals of the story? I would just say that there are a lot of people that don't offer supervision for this reason. And that's sad. That, um, you know, it can be hard to find a good supervisor because so many people are like, oh, I don't want that responsibility. And so when a story like this comes out, you know, that gives those people more ammo of why they're not doing this work and why people who need good supervision post-grad aren't necessarily getting it. Yeah, I, I, I often will get that from colleagues because I'll say, hey, you know, you're at the stage of your career where you should start, you know, you could start supervising. It's, you know, it's. It's, it's pretty fun. I like it. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want that responsibility. And what I say to that usually is I've been supervising at various levels of competence for the past 15 years and nothing bad's ever happened to me. And mm-hmm. I'm not and I'm not particularly careful, you know, but so I think that the risk is pretty low. The other thing is, is this story shouldn't the lesson shouldn't be that supervision is dangerous. This lesson should be that bad supervision is dangerous <laughs> because my guess is that she would have been fine if she would have responded uh, more robustly or at the very least followed up. You know, mm-hmm. Did you actually establish that contract um, or made her terminate or something? But the fact is, is that they had one supervision session the the supervisor said oh, I don't I don't know about this I think you need to develop a contract and maybe you should terminate and then never never followed that up with anything mm-hmm. so that the the supervisor I think started okay at least you know was trying something and then you know didn't follow up so I, you know I'm just wondering if the supervisor would have been fine if they, she would have followed it up yeah other morals of the story that I can think about is don't be a therapist if you're stupid. Uh, because you know it gives us all a bad name well that and you know there are other jobs that don't require so much brain power you know if you think that sleeping in the same bed with your client is you know a viable option there's something wrong with you and it's probably going to translate into not just that one behavior i mean i just can't imagine what this woman was doing with all of her clients over the span of 15 years. I just can't imagine that this was like the one moment where she wasn't, uh, you know, so great. Having said that, people will sometimes email me and because I, I often say stuff like that. I'm just like, who are these people? People will email me and say, well, I knew someone who was who was totally a great clinician and they had this weakness with this one client and everything fell apart. So, mm-hmm. So maybe it was that. I don't know. 
Another moral of the story is monitor your supervisees. If you have a supervisee, you're responsible and your neck's on the line just as much as the supervisee is and, you know, monitor them. Um, also, when you become aware of a supervisee who is acting unethically, act swiftly and act strongly, even if the supervisee is going to be annoyed with you. It's your ass is on the line and, you know, don't be soft in situations like this. It's, it's uh, as we can see, when you act softly or in favor of your supervisee, then you, you know, they drag you down with them. Um, don't supervise people unless you're prepared to really oversee their work. Also, agencies need to pay more money for supervision, so supervisors yeah. will be dedicated to it with more of their time. Supervision in our field is often really just a secondary thought to the overall provision of clinical services, and that is a problem. Uh, also, supervisors are vastly undertrained. Many supervisors have no training, so uh, or very little training, and so um, that's another problem. Um, also, when someone asks for your client file, hand it over. I mean, come on, people. It's it's unethical to to not do so. It's it's potentially even a HIPAA violation or something. It's it's not a good thing. If someone asks for your file, hand it over. Okay. Also, make sure that your client's files are always ready to be released, so that you never have to worry about it. That's how I operate. Uh, every piece of paper, everything that goes in the client's file, I always think. Is it okay if the client asks for my file in the next five minutes? Is it do I feel okay just just handing my file over? And that's how I operate. So I but I but I have a lot of colleagues and other people that I know who operate not from that position. They they operate like the file will never be pulled, okay. and when the file is requested, they suddenly freak out and go, "Oh my God!" And then they don't hand it over because there's all this incriminating information in there and i'm just thinking like i don't think you understand the purpose of a client file you know right it's not your personal dumping ground for your musings you know it's a it's a legal document that your client has access to at any moment so uh so you know that's my other moral of the story any other morals of the story you can think of rebecca you know this work is hard and a lot of times People want their clients to get better, and they can make weird choices in that. You know, I'm sure her thought was, boy, this client needs so much. This overnight session will give that client that. But really, you know, if you're thinking that far outside the box, there's that client needs more than you can offer in an individual session. You know, that client needs a group. That client needs medication. That client needs maybe time and inpatient, you know, I mean, let's like, you can't do it all in an overnight session. Right. That could have been the precipitating countertransference or, and, or if you're a therapist and you start being attracted to your clients, really start looking at that. There's nothing wrong with, with, with looking at some of your clients in that way, as long as you don't act on it. But it could be an indication that your personal life is falling apart, which is usually the case. And that you need a lot of personal support and you need, you need friends and you need help with grief or you need, you know, something. It's usually the case. Uh, so that's another piece of advice. All right. Well, that does it for that episode in which I shot and freuded 
myself, which is fun to do. Uh, doesn't it feel? Does it feel good? I mean, it's mixed feelings. It feels bad because it's like holy crap. But it does. It also kind of feels good to me to kind of get this off my chest. How do you feel about it? Uh, you know, these things are kind of fun. The legal world also has a different version of this, where you can read a different version of why people lost their law license. So I have to admit, I check these things out wherever I can find them. <laughs> <laughs> The legal world, meaning lawyers can lose their... Yeah, the Bar Association, the Bar News has people who are disbarred. We don't even have a good word. Disbarred is such a good word. So you can read why people were disbarred, and it's similar train wreck stories. Yeah. You're like, oh my god, I can't believe that just happened. What would our word be like? Like, unfreuded or something? Dislicensed? Yeah, I don't know. D... D... You have to turn in your purple shawl. Oh, your, your puffy hat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gosh. Yeah, we don't have any. Oh, unshingled. Unshingled. Ooh. You know, because you hang a shingle. You know? Right. Anyway. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 